1: the next normal in the insure tech world and we continue our focus on the female perspective of these times and issues and we have two very special guests from the venture world with us today and we're going to let jen Byrne, our guest host from kesney do the introductions please tell us who do we have with us today
2: thanks rob yeah it should be a, a terrific conversation we have Jen Noondorfer, the partner and founder of January Ventures, along with Caitlin Johnson, the principal at AmFam Ventures. What will be great about our conversation is we'll get to hear the perspective of both an independent VC like Jen, as well as the point of view from Caitlin, who is on a corporate venture fund.
3: Yeah, I am very excited to have both of these people on today. It's going to be an exciting conversation. We're going to get to talk about uh, the way that they were looking at the world before COVID and now after COVID. You know, how did they invest in companies? What was their their mission? What was driving them? Has that changed? Are they looking for new companies? It's going to be a great conversation. I can't wait for it. We
1: enjoyed the interview with these two and hope you enjoy it as much as we did doing it. So without further ado, here is our interview with Jen Noondorfer, partner of January Ventures, and Caitlin Johnson, principal at AmFam Ventures.
3: Well, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being on today. It is uh, exciting. We get to uh, work on our third episode in our series, The Next Normal. And uh, with me today is Jen Burns. Rob is not with us today. Um, He's still alive. He's just not on the podcast this afternoon. We'd like to welcome everybody and welcome, Jen. Welcome back uh, to co-hosting with me today.
0: It's great to be on the show with you again. Excited to dive into the conversation.
3: Yes, I am very excited about the podcast today. We get to dive in to another portion of the next normal. And with us today, we have Jen Noondorfer with January Ventures and Caitlin Johnson with AmFam Ventures. Welcome.
4: Well, thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. It's great to be here.
3: Very glad you could be on. Well, Jen, why don't we start with you? Where are uh, you calling in from today?
4: I am located here in Boston. So we are just starting to get summer weather, which is nice. And at January, we actually are always co-located. So, you know, I am usually here in Boston. My partner, Marin, is in Amsterdam. And we oh, wow. previously traveled a lot, spent most of our time on the road visiting companies, visiting our investors, sort of crisscrossing the country. So it's a real change to be here and grounded. But So far, so good.
3: Yeah, that is crazy. Well, tell us just a little bit about January Ventures.
4: Happy to. So we are an early stage fund, which means that we primarily invest at the pre-seed and seed stage. Our focus is on B2B enterprise companies. And within that, we typically invest in the future of work, the digitization of health, and the application of proven technologies to more traditional industries. So within that, that's where we look at a lot in the insure tech space. We have started investing in October of 2018, currently have 22 companies in our portfolio, and really look to partner early with the great founders of the future to help them build successful tech companies. And we fundamentally believe that the founders of the future will be different than the founders of the past, and that's gonna be a much more diverse group. So what we focus on are investing in female-led companies or companies with diverse founders, because that's who we believe are going to be building the next big tech companies.
3: Wow, that is really, really neat. I was looking through the papers I was given from your LinkedIn and just a lot of history here. You have invested and been a part of a lot of early startups, and it's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Caitlin, why don't we go to you? Where are are, uh, you calling us from today?
5: I am calling you guys from outside of New York City. So we've escaped to the suburbs of Philadelphia to get a reprieve from the city during the COVID crisis. And similar to Jen, you know, I historically had spent, gosh, so much time on the road meeting new companies, visiting our LPs, really, you know, everything that comes along with the glamour and the glitz of, of being a venture capitalist. But I have to say, I've really been enjoying the the time being grounded at home and not having to hop on a plane and go here, there and everywhere. So it's been a, a nice but welcomed reprieve.
3: I would imagine I would imagine I don't have to travel a whole lot, but Rob typically does, and he always tells me how nice it is to actually be grounded for a little bit of time and get to do a lot of the things that he wouldn't otherwise get to do. So I know I know a lot of people uh, right now that is a a upside to some of the downside that's going on. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit, Caitlin, about Amfam Ventures and, and what it does?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So we are on our third fund. We are a 200 million dollar fund that's focused on investing in the future of insurance. And so we're backed by a cadre of carriers, financial institutions that all have a vested interest in kind of seeing how they can further the innovation and the evolution of the insurance markets. We'll direct or will invest directly into insure techs and brokerages and things like that in the space, but we'll also invest into things that are adjacent to insurance which is where we end up bumping into a bunch of enterprise SaaS. so it sounds like january ventures jenna january ventures and i should be talking a lot more often to see how we can kind of co-invest on a bunch of companies
3: that is wonderful i see Amphim ventures quite a bit in the insured tech space and you know i was just wondering maybe if you could give us a couple of the names of some of the early ones uh, you invested in would that be okay
5: Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of our, you know, insure tax that we've invested in, there's a company called Clear Cover, which is selling auto auto policies and they're going direct to consumers. There's a company called Bold Penguin, which is based out of Columbus, Ohio, and what they're really facilitating is more of like agent tooling as well as tooling for both independent agents as well as on the carrier side for lead flow and lead generation. So without getting into the nitty-gritty details of, of it all. But yeah, those are those are a couple ones that uh, that we've had that have moved on to kind of later stages of fundraising.
0: And Caitlin, I know Amfan Ventures has been very active in the check investment space. I think yeah. you're one of the top five most active, if not top three most active. So you have a lot going on. I was wondering did anything about your investment criteria or kind of thesis change as you look at the landscape? before COVID, and now we're in the middle of COVID, and how you might invest going forward, thinking about, as we've all been catapulted into digital, the famous quote from Satya Nadella, we've had, you know, two years of innovation happen in two months. So I would imagine things have changed. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how your investment focus may have changed. Absolutely. You know, I think we've been very focused at AmFam Ventures for a number
5: of years on the digitization of a lot of, I think, really outdated processes that a lot of carriers are encumbered with. And for one reason or another, find it really difficult to switch their systems, whether either due to cost or just due to lack of technology that adequately addresses the pain points that they're experiencing. And I think what this has done is, is hopefully, to your point, rapidly create that environment for more digitization to occur and for the uptick of, of the solutions that these companies are selling to hopefully be adopted on much shorter enterprise sales cycles than they've historically been adopted on. So I think we're hoping that we're, you know, that we'll see enterprise sales trends, you know shorten. But with that also comes the other side of the coin where insurers right now, especially like if we just look through the auto lens, have been giving dollars back and premium dollars back to folks around the nation because everybody's not driving as much and there's lower accidents and lower claims that are happening. And as a direct result of that with, you know everybody's thinking of their bottom line and cost-cutting measures. And so it will be really interesting to see, usually in these times of economic recession, folks do get much more interested in shopping their policies for better rates. And so it'll be interesting to see how the insurance market kind of evolves over the next several months and whether you know the GEICOs and progressives of the world who historically do really well during these recessionary periods are going to be thriving. And if that's at the detriment of all the other carriers out there.
0: And Jen, how about you? What what has changed in your world as you look back pre-COVID and now as we're moving forward? Has that changed the way you think about investing and founders and in what area of B2B enterprise investments?
4: Yeah. So, you know, it hasn't changed sort of our, our underlying fundamental thesis and, our, and the areas where we look, right? So we we have not stepped away from, you know, B2B enterprise or even within that, the, the areas that we look at. But I think what we have spent a lot of time doing is really trying to figure out which of the changes we're seeing are short-term pendulum shifts that are going to, you know, swing one way and swing back and which of these trends actually represent long-term change. Um, and, you know, I think within that long-term change, we're seeing some trends that are accelerating change. So, you know, you mentioned this really steep digital adoption curve. Suddenly, we're seeing behaviors that we thought would take a decade to become widespread and they happened in 3 days. And so, you know, that's sort of an acceleration of a trend. There's also totally new trends that that, you know, are emerging and new needs. And so that's where we're spending a lot of our time is really parsing what we think is here to stay because obviously that's where we want to to invest and I think What's interesting is particularly some of the, you know, the brand new changes or trends that have been introduced because we invest early. And so we want to invest in companies that are just seeing those changes and are positioning themselves from the start to take advantage. You know, It's much harder for a company that has raised 100, $200 million to pivot to take advantage of the new opportunities that you know, COVID and this pandemic present. If you are just at the early stages and you're still trying to find product market fit or you've raised a couple million dollars, it's much easier. And so, you know, I think we believe that in a certain sense, COVID puts everyone back at the starting line, given how much things are shifting. And, you know, as Caitlin said, we are really focused on these areas where suddenly given the technological adoption, there's just more opportunity for businesses Um, and people are Rethinking the way they do things. Like one of the barriers that we always talk about for our companies is that the hardest thing for many of them is to convince people to do a new behavior. So convince their customers to do something differently. And what this moment uh, that you know that COVID and the pandemic have created is that suddenly everyone is rethinking how they're doing things. And there's urgency around that. You know, so if it's moving to a more digital process, Well, suddenly they're doing that. They're realizing how much pain is associated with the tools that they, you know, for example, the tools that they have, and they are thinking through how to upgrade their tech stacks so that things are more efficient or introduce new processes to better interface with our customers in a digital way, given that people can't come into a branch. So that's really where we are focused. And I think that will be where we focus, you know, both in the short term and in the long term.
0: And just to follow up on that, in the sort of realm of new trends, are you seeing new ideas and concepts and new investment opportunities that didn't even exist before? So when I think about as everyone has shifted to digital, whether you're processing a claim or you're interfacing with a customer, now that everyone is on digital platforms, that might spur opportunity to invest in things like risk and fraud and identity and cyber security. So just curious if there's anything in that area that you're looking at
4: yeah, that's a great question. So I think the cybersecurity piece of this and fraud prevention is huge. And that, you know, obviously that's always been a, a thing that companies need to assess and, and and manage to, but suddenly for you know t- to be specific to insurance, when you're processing all of your claims digitally, suddenly that need is so much more and is something that, you know, maybe was the 20th priority on someone's list and is now number two because they're suddenly seeing the risk and the cost of the fraud or, or digital risk. So that's definitely a new area of opportunity that we're seeing both in insurance and frankly across all of the industries that we look at. You know, and then certainly I think ways to interact with customers more digitally was something that some industries were thinking about but others really didn't because you know branches and the physical experience was much of how they went to market. So, you know, they may have had a digital interface, but it wasn't core to the strategy. And we're seeing that really now as you know, companies realize that they need a full tech stack to not only recruit customers and go to market, but then also enable a customer experience that is truly digital. And then a third area that we're seeing is, and I'd be interested to see, you know, what to hear Caitlin's opinion on this as well. But given that the customer, consumer, company behavior has shifted so significantly. One of the things that we're seeing is that it's actually beginning to impact their AI and, and machine learning. And so the data that's coming in is so different and skewed that you know the, algorithm, the predictive algorithms that they had had prior are suddenly out of date or not working correctly. And so we're really seeing an opportunity there that is quite unique and frankly didn't exist
0: four months ago. Very good point. Yeah, Caitlin, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. Yeah, I think so the AI ML term
5: gets thrown around so loosely today. It's it's such a, it's a fun buzzword people like to drop in conversation. But I think realistically, because of the, the limitations to really labeling data sets, machine learning and AI hasn't progressed nearly to the extent that I think the venture community was hopeful that it would a couple of years ago when it entered into common vernacular. And so I think to Jen's point, what we're seeing is that as they're trying to rely, and, and it's so much more important now to rely on these data sets that haven't either been appropriately tuned or trained, it's creating all sorts of malfunctions going on um, and not a Allowing them to be making the same types of decisions if it's just being based off of these these data sets, if that makes any sense. And so, what we're really hopeful for is that you know I, I've been kind of on the bandwagon for a long time around ways like data, it can be so rich and so powerful, especially within the insurance market. And, you know, one of the barriers that a lot of these insure techs do face when they're coming up against the carrier incumbents is the fact that the carriers have long books of history and long legacy amounts of data. And But what the carriers, where they're deficient is, they need to be able to process all that data and have the technology in place to make that more of a weapon. And so what I'm really hoping is this digitization will help the carriers as well as the insurer tax just push the entire industry forward by either getting access to new and interesting data sets that are truly valuable and differentiated or um, mobilizing some of their current data in ways that they hadn't historically been doing.
3: I love that. Um, So here's one for you. This is something I was sitting here thinking. We were doing this, you know, the new normal podcast and you know, I, I'm just wondering, what has actually changed in your world? Is it the way you invest? Is it the amount of money maybe per company you invest in? Or is it the difference in technology uh, or startups you're, you're looking at? What has actually changed moving forward in this moment in history? Whenever we had quarantine and we had pandemic, we have all these things that we hadn't planned for. Is there a change in a year from now that you'll be able to look back and say, yes, we're doing this different because of all this? Or is there not a change? And Caitlin, why don't you take that first?
5: Sure. So I think, you know, I joined the venture world about five years ago. And since coming into into the market, I've just seen valuations because we've been on such a bull run, right? Valuations have gone up into the right. Companies that used to be able to raise Series A dollars with, you know, I'll, I'll talk in enterprise SaaS terms. And back in 2015, the benchmark was, do you have a million dollars in ARR? And now, a million dollars in ARR, people are are doing deals at the Series B, at the Series C stage. So we've just seen valuations move so materially up into the right, especially relative to traction. And so one of the things I'm actually kind of excited for, to, to be honest, is that it seems like we're going to normalize that and and this kind of incoming or impeding recession that everybody's anticipating should help kind of bring us, I guess, back to levels that feel more sustainable. It's quite frankly, the valuation arena has been somewhere where I've been, you know, nervous about and, and have coached a lot of entrepreneurs on is that, you know, there's always this delicate balance between wanting to ingest as much capital as you can to finance your company to get it to the next inflection point. Doing so while marrying that with the not wanting to take on excessive amounts of dilution and, and having it be a palatable and reasonable valuation for venture capitalists to get in on to make it, you know, an appealing and attractive offer. You know, we always talk about, you know, a, a classic line that you'll hear a lot of VCs talk about is portfolios, you know, roughly, right, are a third, a third, a third, a third go to zero, a third are this kind of these like middling companies with middling progress. And then a third are your outliers who have extraordinary success. And I think a lot of times it comes down to the the third that's kind of this middling progress third, at least a trend that I had been witnessing is that a bunch of them can get into that spot. And now sometimes it's, you know, they just didn't have product market fit. And now you're scrambling to think, okay, how do you recover from that? But but sometimes it's because they raised at valuations too far over their skis and now have saddled themselves with needing to hit certain traction or raise a down round to be able to accomplish your next round of financing. So what I'm hopeful for is that this is just net positive for the – the venture community on both the venture side, or the investor side, as well as the entrepreneur side, and that it, it allows us to kind of move forward. So that is certainly one thing I think in a year from now, we will look back and we will say, yeah, I think the valuations I was thinking about pre-COVID are a lot different than the ones that I'm, I've i considered post-COVID. And then just to kind of put a point on, on that last part is, venture capital as a community has been through a lot of different economic cycles. So you've got like the, the bubble burst in 99-2000, you've got nine you've got the financial crisis of 08-09, and now you have COVID. And in each of those, when you kind of look at back at the funds that have had tremendous and, and outsized performance, at least from a venture standpoint, it's the folks who have been really disciplined around pricing and who have continued to deploy during the time of uncertainty. And so at amfan Ventures, we're really excited. We've you know, got a, a fresh new fund and, and we're we're very much open for business, and so that takes a lot of different forms and shapes. And you know, we we are a distributed team, and so we're kind of used to hopping on the on Zoom to get to know folks over Zoom first. We usually always meet the folks before we do an investment. Um, and now that things are opening back up, we were still very active over the, the shutdown period, but it was with companies that got through investment committee who we had had a historical relationship with. Because I do think that face-to-face element and just getting to know somebody and you know investing in companies is You know, when you go onto somebody's cap table and when you go onto somebody's board, it's like a marriage in a lot of ways, you know, you're establishing a multi-year relationship and you really need to make sure you can tolerate that person and you like being around them. And so we've always found this middle ground of being able to augment the need for constant face-to-face interaction with heavily virtual and and then meeting in person to kind of just codify the initial impressions that we had. So that's a
4: little bit about through our lens of how we're seeing the world.
3: Wow, Jen, what what about you? What do you see?
4: Yeah, I agree with so much of what, what Caitlin shared. We are also open for business and I think feel like this is a really great time to have fresh capital to deploy. You know, I think there's a lot of conflicting advice for founders right now. On one side, you hear investors saying there's never been a better time to start a company. Now is when all of the next unicorns are going to be born. And that, that is true. You look at historical downturns and corrections in venture. And I do think we're at the beginning of another cycle. And I think there will be huge companies that are just starting out today But the flip side of that is founders are also hearing there's never been a harder time to raise capital. And they're seeing that in the market. We just did a survey of early stage founders and 75% of them, three quarters of them were out raising money. And all of them said that, you know, investors are moving slower. They're saying they're open for business and they're not. And so, you know, it is a hard time. Um, And so I think one of the things that We are really leading with at January is just empathy for founders in this moment. There's no doubt that big companies are going to be right. Big companies will be started in this time, but it's also a really hard time to be a founder. And, you know, I think it is that culture of constraint that is going to create these, you know, very valuable companies, right? People will have to be, you know, making tough trade-offs from the start and really have the stomach to be a founder because it's not going to be easy But, you know, to the founders that we meet, we're just expressing a lot of empathy to start. That said, you know, we are open for business. And since the pandemic have made, have closed on two investments and committed to two others. um, And three of the four are companies that we only met on Zoom. So, you know, I think that is, that's going to be a real uh, challenge for for venture funds, because I think we are, we're not going to go back to, you know, the old normal of in-person meetings anytime soon. And I think that if funds can't get comfortable investing, you know, with only virtual meetings, they're going to miss out on a lot of deals. And, you know, I also think it's stage, there's some variation by stage, but, you know, we firmly believe that we can, we've designed a process where even when we are just virtual we can do the same type of diligence and get to the same level of conviction as we would if we were having in-person meetings. So, but, you know, I think as Caitlin said, we are being more thoughtful about some particular pieces of that diligence. And so I think anyone who is actively investing right now wants to make sure that their valuation is going to hold in six to 12 months. So, you know, I think what we are noticing is that rounds are happening and they're happening for, you know, companies that are performing right now are, are able to raise capital. But there is more negotiation around the valuation and a bit more pressure testing as there's still a lot of flux in valuations. I don't think we're in a new normal yet. And so everyone wants to make sure that, you know, whatever price they're at uh, still makes sense when, when we kind of come out of this. Um, and, you know, I'd say one of the things that we are looking for, particularly now, is a founder who can sell. And what I mean by that is like we are in this virtual world, right? And so, you know, I'm sure you've seen many of these workshops about how to do a great virtual pitch and how to establish rapport. And that's relevant not only for investment and building that relationship with investors, but also to recruit a team and also to sell your product. And so, I actually think the the virtual pitches are sort of a a great assessment for us of what sort of rapport that person and that management team are going to be able to build, and are they going to be able to have traction in this remote world however long it lasts, or are they going to sort of stall until we're back to normal? And so that's something that, that we are really looking for. And then the last thing that I would say is, as a fund, we are getting much more involved making... Not only making intros for our companies, we always make introductions, but figuring out new ways to make introductions so that we are simulating those in-person meetings. And, you know, so many enterprise software companies use in-person events as a way to go to market and meet customers. So whether it's an industry conference or different things like that that just aren't happening, it's harder to be spontaneously in a room with an investor and go over and introduce yourself and give that elevator pitch so we're working to figure out ways to simulate that so that it is a very, very warm intro rather than just, you know, sort of a, a casual email introduction.
0: That's phenomenal. Such great points, Jen and Caitlin as well. And I'm and I'm so glad to hear that both of your funds are staying active and proactive, and able to close deals in, this, in a challenging environment. So that that's terrific. One of the things that I wanted to cover in our conversation, and this is something that I know, Jen, you've written quite a bit about, and is fundamental to your thesis for your fund, which is it's one of the things that keeps me up at night, which is how do we not go backwards with the limited progress that we've made in investing in women founders? And There are terrific stats that I think, Jen, you've shared in terms of the, um, despite lack of funding, women-led startups have outperformed, and data is starting to show that to be the case. And so what can we do to... Continue to make progress in investing in diverse founders. Some of the techniques you just mentioned, in terms of sales and that sort of support and those introductions, are so fundamental. Um, so I'd love to just hear from both of you. You know how how can we keep progress moving forward and in investing in diverse founders?
4: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought this issue up because I do think that's a real risk in a moment like this. And you know, there any crisis like this can really highlight privilege, and I think it's important to make sure that we do not let diversity fall by the wayside uh, in this moment. And, you know, I think the, the, what we've heard from some funds is they're only going to invest in people that they already knew, or they're going to invest in, you know, people who sort of already are in the network. And while that is a reasonable reaction to sort of a moment of uncertainty and wanting to mitigate risk when there's you know, already a lot of risk, the upshot of that is that, you know, typically those networks or the people that are close to them are not the most diverse group. And so, you know, it's something that we obviously, given the focus of our fund, are really, are really le- you know, making sure that we're leaning into. And so, as an example, one of the things that we have launched post-COVID is an event series called Pitch Collective. And what we've done is invited seven other funds, and we'll you know, probably grow and evolve that group, but made it a way for founders to pitch multiple funds at once. And so, what we're doing is basically bringing our deal flow, and you know, having our our partner funds bring their deal flow and pooling that. And that creates much more diversity. It diversifies all of our pipelines, and then it also makes it much more efficient for founders. So all these founders are out there raising. You know, there's sort of never been a time when VCs are more willing to take you know meetings because. You don't need to fly there. It doesn't need to be in person. So anyone's open to a meeting and it can be very inefficient for founders because they don't know who's deploying capital. They're wasting a lot of their time. And so Pitch Collective is really designed to make it efficient for founders, increase that top of funnel and, and say to founders, cold pitch us, We'll find, you know, we'll we'll filter through and basically give you all the opportunity to pitch to multiple investors. And I think things like that are going to be important to make sure that in this moment we don't all retreat to the people that we already know and the people that are, are most top of mind.
0: Caitlin, how from um, an AmFam Ventures perspective, how do you all look at trying to progress this notion of investing in diverse founders? frankly, just yield better results. So how how do you tap into that and how do you support that
5: Yeah, you know, it's something that I've reflected on a lot in this community, and then kind of over the course of my career, because I I got my career started as a a female engineer, which, you know, you're one of a couple, Jen and I are one of a couple female venture capitalists. And then the founders that we interact with are a couple, you know, at least from the female side, it's it's definitely in the minority, as well as other minorities. So I don't want to just, you know, your question was much broader than just females. And and how do we, you know, have diversity across the board? And so when I've taken a step back and looked at comments that'll come up as to why didn't we feel confident in um, backing a particular founder, whether it was, you know, gender or from a minority standpoint, it's usually like you'll hear comments and it's not just we as an AmFan Venture, I mean, the collective venture community, you'll hear comments like, oh, I didn't think that person was as strong as, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think it's going to take a, a couple of things. One, it's definitely going to take reframing from the investor's perspective to understand there's multiple ways to sell. But to Jen's point, selling is a, an, a really necessary skill. And some of the um, companies that have gone on to be unicorns, I, I think had you plugged in a different founder with a different skill set that wasn't as strong as selling, it wouldn't have progressed nearly to the extent that that particular founder who had a skill set of selling had been able to because so much of attracting venture capital dollars is selling. So much of getting that early product market fit is your ability to sell your company and what value is. So from that standpoint, there are foundational skills. How can we help these communities either become aware of these foundational skills, or just get exposure, so that way they, when they waltz into a room of investors or a Zoom call or a pitch day, they are armed with the skills that will allow them to know how these processes work. And I think a lot of times it's really difficult. I know prior to getting into venture, it, it was a black box to me. It, you know, we're a really tight knit community. Sure, now there are all these blogs and things like that that try to unpack it for founders, but I think. By far and large, we can do a lot more by plugging kind of resources out there, whether it's through the incubator networks or the accelerator networks, ways to help people familiarize themselves with the process so that by the time they're ready to go pitch or if they even just need that, you know, extra push to, you know, jump off the diving board and like, go start a company. Because, you know, it it takes so much confidence. It's a lonely road. And to Jen's earlier point, like right now, the climate, it's never been more daunting, at least within the last decade to go out and raise funds for an idea. So, you know, I think as a community, I'd like to see us come together better to create resources that enable the founders to level the playing field in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. No, I I agree. And I think one area that we often get asked by women entrepreneurs is what advice do you have for us? Like, how can we think differently? Or how can I approach an investor differently? So if each of you had to offer one piece of advice to a female founder, what would your number one tip be? Jen? Yeah,
4: so mine is sort of a a two-part one. And it It comes from the question that I often get asked, which is, you know, how should I pitch? And should I pitch like a man? And should I, you know, what's wrong with my pitch? And my view is that every person should pitch in their own authentic style. So I don't think it's as simple as saying, you know, a woman should pitch like a man. I think everyone needs to pitch in a way that is authentic. As Caitlin said, it comes back to selling and you're going to sell with your authentic style. But my piece of advice is that, you know, in general, um, and I have invested in, you know, both men and women and seen pitches from men and women. And so in general, what I see is that men tend to always pitch the biggest, boldest vision, everything goes right, you know, rocket ship to the moon. And more often women will pitch their base case, what they know they can achieve. And the issue is that as investors, we always know that there are you know, assumptions and best case scenarios baked into a pitch. So we always haircut when we hear a pitch um, and we do the risk adjustment. And the problem is that if you pitch the conservative case and then investors risk adjust, suddenly that idea looks much smaller. And so you know, I think what, what we always tell our founders is to get into that mindset of pitching the biggest vision. Remember that when you get to that big vision, You will have a massive team. You will have, you know, all the capital that you want. It will not just be you. And so get into that mindset and pitch the biggest, biggest vision. And that's what, you know, that will get those investors excited. And you won't hear the feedback of like, well, we just didn't know if it was big enough. Or if you wanted to build a billion dollar company, because women do and women are. But if they pitch that big idea from the start, then investors will be on the same page.
0: Yeah, that's so helpful. And I plan to pass that along to a number of our female founders in InsurTech, which is our upcoming program. And I will quote you, Jen. (laughs) That's terrific advice. Uh, Caitlin, what, what would you suggest to female founders?
5: Well, I would first say plus one to Jen on that because I think that is spot on is that a lot of times women will couch and will be conservative about what they think can accomplish. And so her, her points were, were dead on. And the other thing that I would add is that I think go surround yourself with a bunch of mentors and they might be people you know but the more you hustle like being an entrepreneur is about hustling and being scrappy and using your network and so use that network use those skills that you're going to need to develop from day 1 to surround yourselves with experts or mentors in the space and have them be a diverse group because don't just have them it's it's so easy to go you know as a woman to go to other women who are more likely to understand your perspective and where you're coming from but in reality you're going to be pitching men you're going to be pitching women you're going to be pitching all sorts of people. So surround yourself with enough variety of folks who will give you the, um, hard and honest feedback and really practice and hone that pitch with them. Um, And don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's like the other big thing is that you need to put yourself out there. Being an entrepreneur is all about being vulnerable. You're gonna hear the door slammed. You're gonna have the door slammed in your face a thousand times, but it's that thousand and first time that like really matters and it'll make the difference. Um, And so, you know, I just think that you're going to need to have that type of resilience. And so don't be afraid to ask yourself or ask for help from whomever and and whenever you can, um, because you never know when that opportunity will arise or what connections will blossom out of that.
0: So true. Yeah. And that diverse sort of board of advisors, mentor network is such a good point. And I think that's lost on a lot of women entrepreneurs to your point, Caitlin. So second piece of advice I will pass along to many of our female founders that we will be meeting shortly.
3: That was wonderful to listen to y'all and absorb all of that information. And we're, uh, we're drawing to a close here. And I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You were both brilliant women and it was just a pleasure getting to visit with y'all. Thank y'all so much for being on. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank
3: you. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening to our third episode in our three-part series on The Next Normal. A big shout out to Jen and to Caitlin for being on and sharing their words of wisdom with us. It was an exciting episode and uh, we want to give a big shout out to Kisne for being a part and being along on this journey with us. Jen, why don't you just one more time tell us just a little bit about the competition that's coming up uh, with the female founders
2: thanks so much lee and And thanks to you and Rob for really partnering with us on this series. It's very important that we do get to hear from a variety of voices in the industry. So it's really a shout out to you both for really taking lead here. And yeah, just to comment on female founders in suretech we're We're delighted to be in a year four of the program and we'll have investors like Jen and Caitlin getting a chance to see some terrific women-led startups who apply through the program and we'll run our, our standard process between June and September, allowing entrepreneurs to apply with their InsureTech solutions, followed by judging and mentorship and culminating in a terrific final round pitch event on September 21st with InsureTech Connect.
1: This has been a great Opportunity for us uh, to be a part of, and have really enjoyed the content that we've been able to share, and the things that we've been able to learn over these last few episodes. And we thank all the guests who've been with us, as well as Jen Byrne, who's been a pleasure to have her along for this ride. And we'll and we'll look forward to coming to New York when this is all over. Absolutely, twenty twenty four. We'll be there.
2: You're welcome. Anytime.
1: and it can't happen soon enough. So we say thank you and we'll see you next time on another edition of
3: Epinoa Tech. Goodbye, everybody.